Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with the Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers who will share evidence-based practices, real-world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. Our guest today on The Resilient Surgeon is Dr. Vanessa Patrick, and she is here to help us tackle the difficult subject of when and how to say no to the endless requests that flood our already overwhelmed lives. And Vanessa is the right person to help us as she is the author of the incredible book, The Power of Saying No, the new science of how to say no that puts you in charge of your life. Vanessa is a professor in the C.T. Bauer College of Business at the University of Texas at Houston, where she is also the Associate Dean for Research and the lead faculty for the Bauer Executive Women in Leadership Program. Vanessa was born in India, where as an undergraduate at Bombay University, she studied microbiology and biochemistry. And subsequently, she came to the United States where she completed her PhD in business from the University of Southern California. Vanessa's research broadly deals with helping people develop strategies to successfully manage and control the pull of pleasure, in other words, self-regulation, while simultaneously pursuing per personal development and self-mastery in our personal and professional lives. Vanessa's research has appeared in many top academic journals, and she is a recipient of many awards, including being named one of the top 50 most productive marketing scholars worldwide by the American Marketing Association. Vanessa also has a huge presence in the popular press as a columnist for the international news outlet, Hindustan Times, and she's been featured on multiple other channels, including ABC News, NPR, the LA Times, Forbes, the Wall Street Journal, Scientific American, and the New York Times. I've actually struggled to find an expert in the field of how to say no for our podcast for the last two years. And although there are some good books on the topic, I found most to be somewhat formulaic and even rebellious, and often not grounded in any real science or research. Until now, that is. Vanessa's brilliant book is based on the science of relationships, interpersonal dynamics, and her own excellent studies of why we say yes too often and its negative consequences for our lives. What is so different about Vanessa's work and her book, The Power of Saying No, is that it provides a remarkable framework for deciding what to say yes to and no to based on a deep level of self-awareness of what our personal values, priorities, and preferences are. But it's not just one-sided and about all of us as individuals because Vanessa's mantra for her work is, do your best for others while keeping in mind what is right for you. And now I bring you Dr. Vanessa Patrick. Well, Vanessa, welcome to The Resilient Surgeon. It's a real honor to have you with us. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Michael. Yeah, absolutely. 
you know, I'd love to hear just a little bit about your story. Uh, you know, how, uh, you know, you were, I assume you were born in India. I mean, you went to school there. That's one I know for sure, but I'm, I'm, I don't like to make assumptions. Uh, and, and what brought you to the United States? But in, and then in particular, the opening to your book, uh, in the introduction, you talk about a birthday party of yours that you missed because you didn't have an empowered refusal at your fingertips. So I'd, I'd love it if you could relate just kind of your journey to USC, University of Southern California, uh -huh. and how that that birthday party event really, really, it's, it appears became a major source of your entire life's work. Mm -hmm. uh, so so let's, let's start at the beginning. I was born yeah. in Bombay, India, and I grew up uh, in you know a traditional middle class home uh, I think you know we had very strong values so the value for studying and reading and education was just something that we grew up with um, I was always a good student and I um, and when you're a good student in India you're destined to become a doctor or a lawyer or some important profession. And so as the eldest grandchild in my family, and my family was a family of doctors, my grandfather was a doctor, my uncles were doctors. And so everyone thought Vanessa just has to become a doctor. And um, it's interesting because, you know, you take, I took the science pathway. I actually uh, did my undergraduate in uh, on a science track. And then I uh, did microbiology and biochemistry. And then I decided that I medicine and the medical track really was not a good fit for me and my personality. And so I did my MBA in India at the time. And after that, I worked for a little while and we'll come back to work because I'll tell you the story in a bit. But it was during the time of work that I realized that I was definitely more intellectually inclined and I wanted to study more. And there were so few opportunities in India to do a degree further than a master's at that time. And so I would go every uh, every time I had a free moment to what is called the USIS, which is the US Information System uh, in India. It was a it was a building that was relatively close to my office, and they had these huge books which had all the information about colleges. And I would pore over those books to decide where should I go, what should I study, and that's where I learned about the opportunity to do a PhD. And uh, and so I applied to a couple of schools, and I was so lucky to get into the University of Southern California. So that's quite in a, a nutshell, in your hat. wow! I mean, you know, really incredible. Yeah, it, it was yeah. it was an amazing uh, fit for me. It was the perfect um, opportunity to kind of allow me to flourish. It, I mm -hmm. I think my life began once I was given this opportunity to study because just the idea of reading and books and knowledge was just something that I loved. And I don't think I could ever kind of go back to, you know, corporate life the way it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and coming back to the story and, you know, my experience in corporate life. Uh, so my first job was in advertising and I was the junior most person in, 
and the advertising agency in my team at the time. And it was a really interesting time to be in advertising because the India's economy up until then had been a closed economy. And in the early 1990s, it opened up to the world. And we had a flood of multinational companies rushing to India to tap into this massive middle class. You know, it was a like a pot of gold that everyone wanted yeah. to tap into and get yeah. a piece of. And so we had these wonderful companies coming in. But one of the things that we realized is that there would be, we had to operate differently with these organizations. So one of the things that my boss had put in place is that every time we had a meeting, the junior most person, in this case was me, had to write the minutes of the meeting or the summary of the meeting, fax it over to the client, and then the client would fax back saying that they have received it. And the whole system was set up so that everyone was on the same page, given the fact that we were operating across different cultures and things like that. And so this was a pretty routine task. I had been doing it for quite a while. And uh, on the day of my 24th birthday, we had one of those meetings. And for me, it was routine task. And so I just wrote the minutes up, showed them to my boss and went and faxed the minutes because I needed to get home for my birthday party, which was we had all family and friends from all over the city coming over to, to wish me for my birthday. Big event. And Big so, event. <clears throat> well, it was it, in Bombay, there any excuse to celebrate, right? That's so that's why it, I say that because I know the celebrations <laughs> are such a big deal. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. you know, you have a birthday and you've got grandparents and uncles right. and aunts and friends right. who will stop by for dinner. And so it was one of those things that everyone just, you know, you, you celebrate about your birthday. And uh, I was getting ready to leave the office when my boss stopped by and she said, did you, did you send across the minutes? And I said, yes, I did. So she said, okay. And then she turned around and she walked towards the elevator and she quickly turned around and I thought she was going to say, have a great party, enjoy your evening. But instead, she said, did you receive the receipt from the client saying that they have received the minutes? And I hadn't. And so I said, no, I haven't. And so she said, don't leave till you receive that fax saying that the client has received the minutes. And I just was shell-shocked, Michael, just completely mm -hmm. stunned because I was trapped. I had absolutely no way to figure out how to navigate the situation. And so long story short, I did spend my 24th birthday in an empty office, watching a fax machine and waiting for a fax to arrive. Until now, what time? Well, it was about, I, I waited for a few, four hours or so. So it was about 9.30 yeah, like by, about 9 .30. by right, 9.30 so by the time. 9.30 by the time. 5 o'clock to 9.30, yeah. 9.30 by the time the fax arrived. In the meantime, I called home a few times. Guests had come and guests had left with apologies because it was a Tuesday and the next day was a working day. So uh, in fact, my grandmother was the only person who stayed to wish me mm. because she couldn't leave without saying mm. happy birthday to mm. me. Uh, and I reached home obviously at about 10.30 or so. But I think what that story um, did for me, that experience did for me, was that it put me in a position to kind of question the 
times we get in ourselves into these situations where we feel so trapped and the things that we have to do in order to advance in our career or the things that we think we have to do uh, to advance in our career or to uh, you know make it from like a shared cubicle to a solo cubicle or to get that name on a uh, nameplate on the door the things that we have to do and the personal sacrifices that we make are sometimes pointless and are not aligned with what we truly value and we often do not feel empowered enough to say no when no is the right response mm -hmm. in the moment. I think, you know, what I, a couple of words that really stuck out in what you said in that moment or said about that moment, and that is trapped, the uh -huh. sensation of being trapped, and then no skills to navigate. No skills Absolutely. to navigate, you know. Absolutely. And that's really the ticket, isn't it? The skills to navigate those ubiquitous issues that we come up against over and over and over again. Yeah, and that's what exactly. your book provides is the is the is the depth of understanding and the skill set to be able to navigate these things. So um, that's why I'm so excited to have your wisdom and expertise here. So Thank you. well, let's jump into this then and and talk about that. Um, and I, first off, I you know. This is such a problem and it's so ubiquitous. And, you know, I'm a cardiothoracic surgeon. Uh, my colleagues are cardiothoracic surgeons. And, and part of our training is extraordinarily rigorous. Uh, you know, I mean, it's huge. It's it's hard. And I like to say that they, the training inculcates us with four habits that are useful, but also detrimental. Discipline to keep going when you don't, don't want to, to be strong, you know, to pretend you're okay, even though you're not. Uh, and, and then one of them is say yes to everything, because we are essentially for years slaves to the residency. And so it inculcates us with an ethos of saying yes to everything. And that becomes very detrimental in our careers later on. So when you think about that, and as you've studied this, what are the life consequences to an individual of what I would call ad lib yeses or reluctant yeses you know that house of cards that you refer to what what are the what's what's the problem with all of that right so i think one of the biggest issues with saying yes to everything that comes your way and not having some sort of system or lens with which you can separate mm -hmm. the good for me activities from the not so good for me activities is that then we get burned out overwhelmed tired resentful and just generally unhappy. Miserable. And I think that yeah. absolutely miserable. Literally. And so miserable. And, and 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 I think resentful of everything. And then be, yeah. and and that has a negative spiral. The idea is for us to kind of align our expertise and our um and, and what we really care about with our, the way we spend our time. And so yeah. being strategic and thinking through what are those things that I care about? What, are, what is it that I truly uniquely bring to the table that nobody else can do? And focusing on those things, having those big rocks, so to speak, that you yeah. focus on, and then 
not paying attention to everything else. Because I think one of the key takeaways from my book is that, you know, everything is a trade-off. When we say yes to one thing, we are saying no to something else. And that something else is often our health and our well-being Mm -hmm. and sometimes our families. Families. And we being neglected because we are prioritizing what's urgent and, you know, what's like feels really important in the moment. But the reality is once we get some perspective, we realize that some of the stuff that really was drawing us in, pulling us in, is not what we are truly passionate about, what we truly care about. Yeah. And, you know, that's what I love about your book because it's it's the foundation of it is self-awareness and understanding kind of what makes you tick, what your drivers are, your purpose, you know, all those things. And that's a base of power as you so beautifully yes. uh, outlined in the book. You know, one thing you, and just to be clear, this not just about the individual saying no also, because your mantra, as you say, is do your best for others while keeping in mind what is right for us. And I, I just yes. love that. So it's a two-sided coin. And oh, it's absolutely. not one of defiance or anything like that, you know. I, I think that that was really important for me to com- communicate in the book, that this is not about being selfish, not about right. being lazy, not about right. not doing your job. This is about preserving yourself, being able to do it in a way that brings the best of you to the world. Yes. Only yes. if we do that, can we actually give of ourselves to others in the best way possible. Yeah. And, you know, this this is incredibly important to me, both personally and in my professional life working with cardiothoracic surgeons, because I feel that oftentimes we lose our way. In, and by that, I mean, our bringing our real talents and strengths and skills mm. to bear and contribute to the world. And they can get watered down and diluted and even hidden by too many yeses. I, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced of this, you know. Yes. Yeah. And so and I see this, this with it. I see this with our best faculty as well at the university. You know, yeah. some of our best faculty are the ones that are are giving so much of themselves to so many things that at some point there's a lot of frustration and burnout. Yeah. And I yeah. think one of the things that, that that I do when we actually do have a faculty training program in place at the university, we kind of prioritize, understand mm-hmm. that you know life is a is is a series of chapters and there are certain mm-hmm. things that are priorities in a particular chapter and you have to make the trade-offs in this chapter these are the things i'm going to prioritize and then i'm going to have start a new next chapter and that chapter might be a different set of priorities and so kind of realizing that we can't be everything to everyone all the yeah. time yeah. is something that you know a lot of high achievers struggle with recognizing yeah no that's right yeah well, so why do we say yes when we don't want to? I mean, that's, of course, one of the big things that yes. you talk about relationships and reputation. Maybe yeah. you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah, so I start out the book with really discussing the problem of why we say yes when we want to say no. And my research identifies three main reasons for why that is. The first is our concern for relationships. We care about other people. We want to be liked by other people. We want to have friends. We want to have a social group. And we believe that saying no will damage the relationship with the other person. 
The second reason why we say yes when we want to say no is that we care about our reputation. We want people to say good things about us when we leave the room, which is essentially reputational concerns. Um, we want to be seen as competent, on the ball, capable of handling anything that comes our way. And saying no seems to reveal a certain vulnerability that we are not comfortable with. And the third thing is that we've never really learned how to say no. So we don't right. have the skill set. We don't have the language. And we've never been taught that. You know, in fact, uh, I often think about the fact that, you know, toddlers and as kids are very comfortable with saying no because they don't have the reputational yes. concerns and the relationship concerns. But we as adults socialize that out of them, right? We we tell our kids uh, to, be nice. to be nice be and kind, kind yeah, and cooperative yeah, yeah. and help others, which is which are all it's good, good things, yeah. but not always at the cost of yourself. And I think that that, uh, that focus on yourself and what you can do to bring your best to the world sometimes in, uh, involves saying no yeah. to things that yeah. come your way. And, you know, again, just to harp on that, it's the ability to bring your best self to the world. I mean, that's what this Absolutely. is really about. This is what this is really about. Yeah. And to Absolutely. live a fulfilling life. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, I love you. You have many metaphors in the book and phrases <laughs> that are just spectacular that will allow me to never forget, you know, some of these principles. And one of the stadium proposal moments and stinking <laughs> pile of garbage. <laughs> and, you know, it's under the... The chapter spotlight effect. Yeah, I'd love it for you to describe that because you're never going to forget this when you listen to this, uh, dear listeners. <laughs> so, uh, as a teacher, one of my goals is to, to is to teach in a way that the concepts are memorable to explain why I have all these metaphors, because that's how you kind of, that's how learning happens, right? You you yeah. say something that's metaphors. novel and relevant yeah. and yeah. it sticks with people. So the stadium proposal moment really draws on this idea that there's this romantic notion that, you know, of being proposed to at a stadium. And what happens is the boy typically is the one who asks a girl to marry him. And they are featured on the jumbotron in the stadium with the whole stadium watching. And everyone is cheering. And it's a quintessentially romantic moment. Except if the girl wanted to say no. If she wasn't ready. Or if he was just not the right guy. Would she be able to say no with all that social pressure and all yeah. that hoopla <clears throat> happening in the background. And I talk about the various instances where we feel similarly trapped as mini stadium proposal moments, where someone asks you something and you just feel like you're on the jumbotron, that the lights are shining on you and everyone expects you to say yes. In those moments, can you say no? And how do you navigate? these situations. And so in the book, I talk about the spotlight effect, which is this overwhelming feeling of self-consciousness that everyone is watching you and expecting you to do a certain thing, to say yes in this particular case. And the fact that we need to recognize the stadium proposal moments that happen in our lives. And they might happen, you know, as we're walking down the corridor, someone might ask us something that we you know, don't really want to say yes to, but we don't feel that we have much of a choice. In a similar way, like the boss told me to stay back 
and wait for a fax. And I was in a stadium proposal moment, yeah. right? And I was stunned. You have not, I, no awareness of it. You're just stunned. Yeah. And I had absolutely no sense of how to respond in that moment. I was tongue-tied and trapped. And that feeling of being trapped and in conflict is a very common feeling when someone asks you to do something that you want to say no to. And so I talk about this in the context of stadium proposal moments. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, you, you, uh, what happens then? I was going to try and relate the story, but you know, the this notion of a stinking pile of garbage oh. and, uh, that that's really uh, crucial for us because it, it's, it's so, so true. I mean, in, in the moment, and then you're left with the yes, stinking pile yes. of garbage. So, yeah, tell us about that. So, so uh, when I want to illustrate the consequences of taking on something that you really don't want to take on, I very often will walk in the classroom with an imaginary stinking pile of garbage. And I say, I have this big pile of garbage in my hand and I just need someone to take it from me. And I walk around and ask, will you take it? Will you take it? And someone might hesitate. And I say, great, here it is. And I kind of rub my hand, rub all this imaginary garbage on them. And then I say, now it's your piece of stink stinking pile of garbage. And I think we, it's useful for us to think about all the things that we take on that we have absolutely no interest in doing as pieces of garbage as far as or even person hate is doing or even, even hate, hate doing, doing. precisely yeah. Yeah. all of those things i mean the when the the goal of the asker is to get the stinking pile of garbage from their hands onto somebody if you happen to be the person who says yes then that somebody is you right now it's your stinking pile of garbage and now you have this thing that you have to take on and you have to um, deal with for whatever time that uh, the, the project is for. And so this, this kind of little mini act that I do makes a few points very clear. Number one, that the goal of the asker is to get someone to do it. That someone mm -hmm. doesn't have to be you. But mm -hmm. if you are, if you say yes, then that someone is you. As soon as you say yes, it's now your problem. And the third thing, which is really, really important to remember, is that if you say no, all the asker does is turn to the next person, the next go person. to the next person on their list. Mm -hmm. And so this is, a, this is a realization that a lot of people find a little bit, you know, shocking because we have an egocentric bias and we believe that oh we are special in some way and the person is asking me because there's something unique that about me I'm responsible I, I uh, I'm good at it most often people are asking us because they just need it off their plate and we feel and it, so, it's magnified by the spotlight effect isn't it that yes. sense of egocentric bias yeah I mean it yes. just dramatically and yeah. And so recognizing that, you know, we are not the only people who can take it on. Mm -hmm. And it, pretty, pretty obviously, if you say no, the person just goes away and asks somebody else. In and the vast majority remembering, of cases. Yeah. Yeah. remembering that is quite helpful. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of really enjoy uh, coming up with these things that allow these devices that allow people to remember the concept. Oh, they're, because they're once priceless. you really think yeah. about it, um, once you really think about it, you know, 
then it becomes, then you don't feel so guilty about saying yeah. no, because guilt yeah. is one of those things that people really struggle with Yeah. in yeah. this context. Absolutely. Well, so, you know, when you're in the spotlight and somebody's got a big pile of stinking garbage that they want to hand you, <laughs> there's sort of three things you can do. You can have an unambiguous refusal, as you say, or uh, unfortunately, you can say yes when you want to say no. But then there's the other third category of shades of no, I think you call yes. it, you know, to yes. buffer it. And what about that as a strategy? All right. So a lot of people just haven't learned to say no well. And mm -hmm. so they very often say no in a way that is wishy-washy or ambiguous so that when they leave that conversation, the person doesn't either doesn't know whether you've said yes or no. And so you've kind of left the conversation with a few uh, knots untied, uh, so to speak, or you come up, you say yes, but you say yes yes in a way that's so resentful that you may as well have said no because you've destroyed that relationship mm -hmm. and so thinking about you know learning how to say no in a way that is authentic that clearly communicates the no response and communicates that with with clarity and with compassion is what mm -hmm. empowered refusal is really about yeah clarity and compassion and that it gets at a Brene Brown, Brene Brown uh, phrase and clear is kind, you know. Yes. And it's really, that's what we're talking about here, isn't it? Yeah. Um, what about excuses or, or you know, yeah. deferring it to later? I mean, those excuses is one interesting area. Yes. And, you know, making up many lies, you know, those sorts yes. of things that I know we've all done at one time or yes. another. Yes. <clears throat> and And, you know, most people, the default uh, mechanism to deal with a difficult situation is to lean on an excuse. Mm -hmm. Because an excuse is an external reason for why you are saying no. You know, everything from my dog ate my homework to I, I, I can't because... I have a bill to pay or I have another, I have to ask my husband or I have another engagement, which may or may not be true, right? And leaning on excuses seems to be our default. What I've shown in my work, however, that an excuse is way worse a strategy to rely on than what I call a personal policy. A personal policy, unlike an excuse, involves us looking inwards and communicating what we feel based on who we are, give voice to our identity, give voice to what we believe and think about and our preferences and our priorities. So let me give you an example. I did this study in which I was dealing with the context of loaning money, and we know that we prefer for all, most people would prefer not to loan money to anybody, right? Because money can be messy. And so in this particular study, what I did was I essentially asked, told people that you have want to request someone for, for a loan, $5,000. And so you go to a friend and, your, and you ask your friend for $5,000 for this loan. And your friend gives you either in one experimental condition, either gives you an excuse, which says, I'm, I'm sorry, I really can't because I have to pay my rent or I have to pay my own tuition or something like that, or says, 
offers a personal policy, which is, I believe that friends should not uh, deal with money. I, I, I firmly believe that uh, money is something that should not be come between friends. So this mm -hmm. is like a belief system. This is who mm -hmm. I am. That's your personal policy. And what I find in the in is that we ask the person, would you uh, give money? Would you take money from this person? Would that person give you money? In the short run, you know, the person goes away and says, well, fine, I take no for no. But what happens is that when we ask, will five years later, you have a need for more money? Would you come back and ask for money again? And in that case, you find that when you've leaned on an excuse, the excuse is external to you, the excuse is temporary. When you lean on an excuse, you have communicated or left the door open to be Left the door open. again. Yeah, yeah. To be asked yeah. again. Whereas when you invoke a personal policy and you communicate your refusal based on who you are, your value system, then you've said no for the long term. The door yeah. is closed. The but friend is not back. going to come back. They and so I back. think that's a yeah. really powerful insight because yeah. in the short run, an excuse would work. But if you want to kind of close the door on this conversation in the long run, you're better off leaning on a personal policy. And that's a key feature of your work here in terms of, uh, it's entirely permeated with avoiding short-term solutions for this yes. problem. Yes, you know, yes. And thinking long-term strategically. And Which this is, is so important. important. This yeah. is so important because, you know, there's this whole notion of decision fatigue and, yeah. and dealing with conflict on a daily basis. If you kind of have a set of systems that work, that set you up for long-term success, then you're not constantly navigating this situation. You've set these right. up permanently. Permanently, yeah. Now, um, uh, th this gets at um next the 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 words we use to say no and one of the things that really was eye-opening for me was the use of i don't or i never i always versus i mm -hmm. can't yes and i'd love you to uh talk about that a little bit but also the word can't i realized it keeps an open story it, it keep it makes an open loop in somebody's head because as mm -hmm. you said long term, you know, or even short term, they think, well, there's a way into this because yes. you're using an external excuse. Yes. And I'd love you to the the key portion of this is what words we use, how what yes. words we choose and how you say it. Yeah. So a key insight from the book is that the language that we use matters. Mm -hmm. And we need to frame our refusal to ourselves as as well as to others in a way that's empowered and implicates our identity. And the specific phrases that I study in my research is the shift of language from using disempowered language, like saying, mm -hmm. I can't because, and giving an excuse to saying, I don't, because this is who I am. This is who I am. And that switch from a non-identity-based refusal, I can't because of some external factor, to I don't conveys a much greater sense of conviction and determination. And when yeah. you 
implicate the identity. This says, this is who I am. This is who I am now. And this is who I'm, I am five years from now and 10 years from now. And so it's much more, it's a much more stable stance. And you come across with way more conviction, determination, and you don't get pushback from others. And therefore, right. you essentially become much more persuasive in the way you communicate. And they end up, correct me if I'm wrong, respecting you more and, yes. and potentially valuing you even more. Yeah. Absolutely. Because, you know, people who stand for something and act from a place of values and have a strong belief system, they come across as much more impressive, much more inspiring, and we are much more likely to uh, follow them or to to be willing to be led by them, right? Yeah. And so yeah. these are definitely uh, and 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 there's so much power in the in the way we speak and the language that we use. Yeah. And so learning yeah. these small things by saying things instead of saying some instead of saying I can't say I don't use absolutist words like I always, I never, this is my policy. When we say these things to others, we come across as, and, and we do feel We're much dealing. more in control. Yes. Like yes. I like to think about these words as putting us in the driver's seat of our own lives. We mm. are the ones steering the way. We are mm. the ones who know where we are going and driving ourselves there. And I yeah, think I that, that. Uh, those are very much um, uh there's a lot of power in that language. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the, these are the, the foundational bricks, if you will, of what you call an empowered refusal. Mm -hmm. you know? And I really want to get that term in front of our, our members here uh, and, and understand what that means. So if you could just elaborate on that, because we've given Absolutely. some techniques now about an empowered refusal, but what does that mean exactly? So an empowered refusal is a way of saying no that implicates the identity, that gives voice to your values, priorities, preferences, and beliefs, and therefore communicates your stance on a matter and comes across as way more persuasive and your and, and does not, quite importantly, does not damage your relationship with the asker or your reputation. Because what an empowered refusal says is, this is about me. This is about my values and my beliefs. This is not a rejection of you. And I think that's such an important thing when we frame the refusal based on who we are and what we believe we don't make it about the other person. And so the yeah. other person doesn't feel that I'm rejected or this person uh, is rejecting me. And that, so it handles the relationship aspect, it handles the reputation aspect, and it also communicates in a very clear and authentic very way, right. your yeah. no response. And you know, I, I what we made so clear in the book, and again, it was so interesting and revelatory to me, is wishy-washy responses, excuses, and that they actually damage the relationship. Because tell us why. I mean, they really do damage the relationship in a subtle, sort of slow-grade, pernicious way. Yeah, because very often when we say yes, when we want to say no, our resentment, our our anger comes out and it also comes across in the quality of the work that we do when mm -hmm. we focus on the things that we really want to do and we 
dedicate our energy to those things, then we are going to give them our best and people are going to see the best products of our work. When you spend your time doing things that you really don't want to do and your heart is not in it, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, you just are unable to deliver well. the quality. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. and instead of your reputation being enhanced, which you think is going to happen by you saying yes to these things, in fact, you can damage your reputation. Yeah, that's what's so beautiful. It's counterintuitive, but so clear when you point it out as you do. Yeah, really brilliant. Okay, now you talk about systems, and I really love <laughs> the system that you created. And uh, in, in you call it, and good Lord, I will not pronounce this correctly, but it's a Napoleon-like Coudoil. Coudoil. It's a French Coudoil, term. So yeah. Just take us away on the Coudoil. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the questions that very often comes to uh, that I used to get was, how do I sift between the things I should say yes to and the things I should say no to? Uh, do I have a framework, a lens by which you can decide? And so the whole book centers around the identity and also about benefiting the world. And so the, the framework I de developed is what I call the decipher your ask framework. Decipher the ask framework is essentially has two key axes. So it's a typical two by two framework. And the two axes are the cost of saying yes to you. Is that high or is that low? How much effort, how much energy, how much sweat and blood are you going to give of yourself if you say yes to this request? So the first axis is about you. The second axis is about the benefit to the world. I mean, how much impact is your yes going to be on the other person? Is it going to be a significant impact? If you say yes, is it going to transform this person's life versus you know, a trivial, you say yes, and it makes no difference. It's a drop in the ocean. And so this framework is really about balancing your needs against the needs of others, mm -hmm. which is what we have to do pretty much every day of our life, right? When we are All dealing with, with uh, situations, especially if you're if you're a surgeon, you're constantly saying, "What do I need, and what do what do my patients need, and what do we, what do my nurses need, and what do my residents need, and all of that stuff." And so that balancing that is really important. And so this two by two framework then results in uh, a high high low low high low low high in the quadrant. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the first type of ask, and I call them pass the salt asks, pass yeah, the salt asks are uh, <laughs> asks where the benefit to the other person is significant and the cost to you is minor. Like it's easy for you to do, but the impact you can have is tremendous. So it's like sitting at a dining table and the salt shaker is sitting in front of you and someone says, hey, Vanessa, pass the salt. And I just pick up the salt and pass it along. Easy peasy for, my, for me, but presumably it makes a huge difference to that person's meal. And so- Yeah, for their whole meal, it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so in our lives, we can think about what are the, some of the things that are past the salt asks, the things that we should say yes to because it's easy for us. It comes so easily to us to do. 
and it makes a big difference in the world. Uh, and so as a professor, for example, writing recommendation letters is something I consider to be for myself a pass the salt ask. I have a system in place on writing recommendation letters. It's relatively easy for me to write a recommendation letter, but I know that it can be a game changer for my students. The they get into yeah. college, they need to, they, you know, they'll get into the, the job, their dream job. So a recommendation letter, in my view, for me, is a pass the salt ask. And again, that's benefit. personal, you know, but you, you make and your own so decisions about these. It is yeah. absolutely yeah. personal because yeah. the cost to you is really, you know, some things are easy for me, maybe super hard for other people mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. vice versa. And so that cost to you aspect is definitely something that you have to assess for yourself. Um, in complete contrast to the pass the salt ask, are what I call the bake your famous lasagna asks. Bake your famous lasagna asks are asks that are extremely tedious for you to do. They might be time consuming, effortful, painful, tiring, whatever it is. Time con a high a high cost to you, and relatively no low benefit to the. Uh, recipient so it's not going to make a huge dent in the world so i i use i use the bake your famous lasagna because lasagna is a relatively hard thing to cook and you it might is. imagine a situation where um you are you know you are invited for a potluck and everybody is invited to bring something and the hostess says well you know you make a fantastic lasagna why don't you bring your lasagna and everybody is bringing party trays and stopping picking up cookies and ready-made trays from the bakery and you are sweating the whole evening making a making, making a lasagna yeah. it makes yeah. no sense right it yeah. makes no sense for you to put your effort into things that really don't matter you should bake that lasagna for a special occasion for you, for a party that you host, or for a special occasion that you want to invest in, not for any potluck party, just because they asked, right? right. And yet we yeah. find ourselves in these situations where we feel, I have no idea, they asked me, and I guess I just got to do it. And then we feel really resentful while doing these things. And is this so, part of the, also, you're the only one that can do this sort of yes, the idea? Sense yeah. that, the, the pressure yeah, of- Exactly, yeah, the sense that yeah. only you uh, and and I think one of the key and most important reasons why we need to say no to things like the Bake Your Famous Lasagna asks is so that we can say yes to what I call the hero's journey asks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah this you is know, where the, the hero's is. Yeah. journey asks <clears throat> is really where the action is. It's mm -hmm. where you bring your best to the world and that best creates an important and long-lasting and meaningful impact on the world. These are the hero's journey as it's not about doing easy things. It's about doing hard things, hard but doing things, hard yeah. things that matter, hard mm -hmm. things that make a difference. Mm -hmm. And so when we conserve our energy to doing those hero's journey asks, then we live much more fulfilled lives because wow. every day we are creating a positive impact, making a positive difference. And so the reason why we talk about this could oil, could oil is actually like a French word for uh, Napoleon was said to have right. could oil. Could oil is this ability to like glance at a situation and immediately know how to 
respond to it. So it is said that Napoleon had such a keen sense of military strategy that he would just look at a situation and he would know exactly how to develop his uh, battle plan. And so in that exact same way, we need to kind of develop the could oil to be able to say, well, recognize the situation for what it is. It's a bake your famous lasagna ask, or it's a pass the salt ask, or it's a hero's journey ask, and respond accordingly. So using that lens and practicing that uh, ability to sift the good, good for me activities from the bad for me activities. Yeah, and that, that gets at the heart of that not being stuck like a deer in the headlights when you've been asked something, because you now have uh, the coup d'oil, your own yes. personal coup d'oil. Did I pronounce that correctly? Uh, I believe so. <laughs> yeah, your own personal coup d'oil for, you know, you recognize it immediately. And I, I think that's yeah. just brilliant. Yeah. And I think I, I think uh, one of the things I I would also say is that this takes time. And so I would always buy time, never mm -hmm. respond with a yes or no in the moment. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. really important to take the time to understand that. And over time, it becomes easier to say that's a, you know, that's a pass the salt ask. Or that. So you get it but, burned into your head. Yes. Yeah. You understand but but while you're developing the skill, it's really a good idea to take the time to weigh the pros and cons of taking stuff on and buying time is the best way to do it. Yeah, it sure is. And I loved your quote of Marcel Proust. Proust. He mm -hmm. says, we are impelled by a state of mind that doesn't last and we make irrevocable decisions based on that state of mind that doesn't last. And, yeah. you know, I learned the hard way because in my career, I said yes to way, way too many things without any understanding of what was going on. I felt like it was what you were supposed to do. And I ended up, you know, doing committee meetings and this, that, and the other, and journals, and I mean, all this stuff that fundamentally I, I just ended up detesting and feeling resentful about. Mm -hmm. And as a small example of this, when I was asked by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, the sponsor of this podcast, to be a part of their wellness initiative, you know, I was, I took three days to think about it. Uh, because when I was asked, it was a huge honor for me, you know, Right. Uh, you know, it was really a big honor. And uh, but I, I realized from my experience that I got to think about it and get away from the yes. immediate emotions. Mm -hmm. And I realized that this is exactly the lane that my hero's journey is in. And therefore, I decided yes. to go with it. And it turned out to be the right decision for me, you know. Perfect, perfect. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I've written a paper uh, which which I which I call strategic procrastination paper, which is essentially, uh, you know, not making decisions in the heat of the moment because we very often don't make the best decisions. We need to be able to be in a cooler state where we can yeah. think through things. And yeah. so, you know, taking our instinct to procrastinate on difficult things and making that strategic and doing and, and strategically delaying Strategic, making important strategic, decisions. Yeah, strategic yeah. procrastination. Yeah. Well, strategic living in, in yes, many ways, so right? True. Yeah. So true. Yeah. yeah. All right. Now, you know, we're going to turn in the closing moments to a problem that we all uh, experience and that are walnut trees. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I just want to relate a personal story. Uh, you know, I was in Hazelin uh, Drug Rehabilitation Center 12 years ago for prescription narcotic addiction. And I remember uh, 
walking the grounds. It's in a very beautiful sort of uh, rural area. And encountering these trees that I'd never seen before and nothing under the trees grew. I mean, it was dead under the trees. And I was so struck by that and I asked about it and they were black walnut trees. Uh, wow. And I learned, and of course at the time, it it held, it was very resonant for me because in a way it represented what the drugs had done to me personally in terms of stripping me of my my life, you know, at the time and mm -hmm. the ground cover and all that. But it's really great in terms of a metaphor for those individuals that we all encounter that don't take no for an answer, even an empowered no. And, you know, uh, I'd like you to kind of expand on that and tell us some of the strategies for navigating these difficult people. Uh, and they may not be, as you said in, in, in another podcast, they may not be difficult constantly, but everybody can be potentially a walnut yes. tree here and there, including yours truly. And I know I was many, many times. Uh, and I'm I'm sorry to even admit that, but I, I'm certain I was. Uh, but how do we how do we navigate that very challenging circumstance? So the there are people that we meet who will sometimes not take no for an answer, and we can be those people as well, uh, where we feel so passionate about our cause, our what we want done, that we insist that the other person this, does yeah. what we want them to do, and. Um, I call these people walnut trees. And, you know, in the literature, if you go back to difficult people and how to manage them, they're called difficult people, they're called toxic, uh, they're, they're called jerks. There's a whole bunch of literature which talks about different types of difficult people in workplaces and in life. Uh, I use the word walnut tree, uh, you know, to elaborate a little bit on your description of the walnut tree. So the Black American walnut uh, is this really tall and imposing tree with this huge and luxurious canopy. And what it does is that it dominates the landscape by exuding into the soil a chemical called juglone. And this chemical is a herbicide and it kills or stunts the growth of all the other trees around it. So while it thrives, it does not allow other plants mm -hmm. to thrive. And in essence, that's what a walnut tree does. By insisting on their way, by not taking no for an answer, a walnut tree is essentially putting their needs, their priorities above yours, right? And so what I found in teaching this concept is that people, when you label people as difficult and toxic and jerks, it's, it, it becomes overwhelming for you to deal with these people. But if you say, you know, that person is just behaving like a walnut tree today. That, that, that's walnut tree-like behavior. It's easier for us to deal with them. We know how to deal with walnut trees, or we can develop the skills to deal with walnut mm -hmm. trees. It's much harder to develop the skills to deal with toxic people. And so I found that using this, uh, this kind of... Uh, moniker of walnut trees to be really useful. Now, walnut trees essentially, very, very simply put, they just don't take no for an answer. You can say an empowered no, you can ground your no in your identity. It just doesn't matter. They are still going to say no. They are still not going to listen to your no. Um, 
And so what I've talked about in the book are the strategies that we can um, deal, that we can develop to deal with these difficult askers. So for example, you know, some of the strategies might include just simply stating your personal policy, right? Repeat to the walnut tree, this is my belief. This is how I, this is, this is my stance. So, you know, being as stubborn or as kind of pushy, insistent as, as they are. Insistent as they are. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, and sometimes that's hard, but we have to develop, you know, that conviction that if this is what we want, we cannot be, you know, overshadowed by this walnut tree. Uh, so one is to kind of really stand your ground and insist. There are also strategies which are less intimidating. So for example, putting technology between you and the walnut tree. So walnut trees are pretty skilled at getting their way. So they have strategies that they know are persuasive. A walnut tree is more likely to ask you stuff face-to-face -face because we are 33 times more likely to say yes to a face-to-face -face request. That's a so face to face information. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Face to they will ask you stuff face to face. They will create a situation where they have a home court advantage. They might call you to their office. They might take you for a meal where they are paying the bill. So they create a sort of power dynamic where you are now indebted to them and it becomes much harder for you to say no. They will also insist on an immediate response. We just talked about the need to take time to mm -hmm. respond. A walnut tree will not give you that time. They will insist, mm -hmm. no, tell me now, tell me now. <laughs> and we yeah, have met yeah. people like well, I've that. I've been there, I've been there, oh my Lord. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so they are skilled at getting their way. And we need to be skilled in recognizing those uh, strategies and navigating them. So one of the ways to deal with a walnut tree is to convert that conversation to um, uh, a, a digital conversation. So don't do the face-to-face -face if you have a choice. Make it mediated by technology. Text, email, phone calls are much better for you when you're dealing with a walnut tree. Uh, you might also you know, have a, a set of people who can be your you know, protectors, who if you are going to falter, they are the ones who will step in and make sure, give you the confidence that you need. If you have the opportunity to delegate, that'd be great. A lot of uh, really uh, effective leaders have you know, the, the, the bad cop, so to speak, who does mm -hmm. the dirty work mm -hmm. and says no on their behalf. So delegating then your note to somebody else and is an effective way to deal with the walnut tree. Uh, and so I've developed a set of strategies that you know we can use and de uh, to figure out how to best navigate uh, the the difficult task of dealing with people who will not take no for an answer. Yeah, and in your book, you really outline those in a very practical way. It's, it's just really outstanding. And you know, one of the things I'd like your thoughts on this is, you know, maybe sometimes these people we can't always avoid them, but when they when they use, you know, guilting, because these are some mm -hmm. of their, as you say, their passive techniques, yes. you know, making you feel guilty or a sense of fear of missing out or especially mm -hmm. the silent treatment, you know, ghosting, as they call it. Yes. Now. You know, those are those are signals that to me would suggest that maybe they're not a person you really want in your life. Uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts about that? 
there are active techniques to get, you to, say yes. to get you to say yes. But then there are also these very kind of psychologically motivated, uh, passive aggressive sort of techniques where, you know, where you in, use guilt, make the person feel really bad. Um, and, and those are not good relationships to have, right? And so when, when you recognize that, it's good to kind of, look at the quality of that relationship and yeah. how and, and sometimes we actually don't have like at workplaces we really don't have much of a choice right. about who right. we want to work with and so sometimes we might encounter walnut trees that we can't really step away from but if you do have a choice it's really important to be able to you know sure stay still clear from them yeah well we're very close to the end here and I think it's really important at least to pay a little bit of service to the importance of uh, saying no to yourself also. And, mm -hmm. and that's, I think, the final piece of the book, because uh, we all struggle with a massive mountain of temptations every day. Uh, and if you could just kind of comment on that, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. And so I think, uh, you know, the initial work that I did was actually in the domain of self-regulation and saying no to yourself, because mm -hmm. it's definitely, as you just said, a huge problem. And I and I firmly believe that, you know, it's not, if we can't say no to ourselves, then we're never going to be good at saying no to others. Yeah. It's not, yeah. a, we, we have to practice on ourselves as well. And so when you read the book and you read about those personal policies, those personal policies can be either, ways in which we can communicate our stance to others but it also has a dimension where we can develop personal policies to monitor our own behavior to shape our own behavior in a way that we that is goal directed that is focused on what we want to achieve in this life and so that self-discipline is so rooted in uh, success and implicates our self-awareness and captures for us, you know, the, the sense that we are bringing the best of ourselves to the world. Okay. And with the number of distractions that we have right now in the world, in whether it's social media to anything else, we really have to have a very strong sense of values and a compass that guides us. And this, you know, I, in the book, I talk about personal policies as a compass, uh, as taking on beautiful uh, uh, metaphor, yeah, a either a compass metaphor. or a bridge. Mm -hmm. um, so, so you know, we can use personal policies to help us achieve the best possible life. Yeah, yeah, and using the words with yourself instead of "I can't eat that dessert." I don't yes. eat desserts, and 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 the, you know if and then I love one last thing I really want the listeners to hear is this idea of strategic postponement in the fried chicken story. <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, that that's a, that's a the paper that I talked about a little bit earlier on strategic procrastination. Yeah. So that was yeah. the motivation. And, uh, you know, long story short, uh, I love fried chicken. And <laughs> I managed to stay clear away from uh, a fried chicken restaurant in Athens, Georgia, for a few years, simply because I use strategic procrastination, I would say, sure, you can eat the fried chicken, just not today. And I would drive by it. So I never <laughs> deprived myself 
myself of the sense that, no, you cannot eat this fried chicken. I simply said, well, you can, but just not today. And it went yeah. on and on till I really didn't want fried chicken anymore. So we wrote yeah. this whole paper based on this idea of uh, strategic procrastination, delaying to a future time, but not depriving yourself in the moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Yeah. Well, Vanessa, thank you so much for giving up of your time to us to help us learn how really fundamentally not just to say no, but to really bring our identity and our authentic selves and our hero's journey to the world, because that's what your work is really about. And I really uh, applaud your work and I have so much respect for what you've done and it's a huge contribution. So thank you so much. Thank you. I'm so glad that we had this conversation. I enjoyed yeah. it immensely. So did I. So did I. This has been The Resilient Surgeon, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.